1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books and Folklore, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nancy Ann, one of the hosts of the channel. Today, we are joined by Dr. Rachel Gonzalez, Associate Professor of Mexican-American and Latina Latino Studies at the University of Texas at Austin. We'll be talking about her recently published book, Quinceañera Style, Social Belonging and Latinx Consumer Identities, Welcome, Rachel, to the New Books and Folklore podcast.
0: Thank you so much, Nancy, for having me. It's an honor to be uh, included in the
1: podcast. I'm very excited to talk to you. But first, I'm wondering if you could, uh, before we begin talking about your book, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be a folklorist.
0: Sure. So I, um, I'm originally from the San Francisco Bay Area. I grew up in Oakland, California. Um, I have an undergraduate degree in anthropology from the University of California, Berkeley. Um, And that's actually where I was first introduced to folklore by the late Alan Dundees. I have a PhD in folklore and ethnomusicology from Indiana University. Um, And that's where my primary training uh, as a professor really, really came into being. Um, How did I come to folklore? That is a complicated question. And if you ask me on the street or I tell my students, um, it's it tends to be a little bit cleaner of a story than talking to other adults. So I'll give you the semi-long version, which is when I started uh, college, I started as a neurobiology major. I was determined to uh, be a brain surgeon because I was coming from um, a Mexican-American sort of working class, Chicano, Chicana background. And there was a very particular sense of if you're going to go to college, you're going to do the best you can do, the most complicated thing you can do, you kind of owe it to your community. Um, Needless to say, two years into into biology at UC Berkeley, I wasn't thrilled. (laughs) I was doing well, but I wasn't that interested in what I was doing. And I happened to take an anthropology course, uh, upper division anthropology course in my first year at Berkeley, and I loved it. And so immediately, I started to think, maybe I could do something else. And I ended up sort of uh, wandering into the Introductory to Sociocultural Anthropology um, big, huge lecture course. And I found that um, that work really spoke to me, thinking about cultures and communities and different levels of social development and all the ways in which we come come together as people and communities in different ways. And I found myself then um, sort of blindly taking courses uh, with Alan Dundies, who I didn't realize was such a big fish in the academic world of folklore until much later, um, I stumbled into the archives, the Berkeley Folklore Archives, when I was an undergraduate um, and taking the course Anthropology 160, which is the Introduction to Genre, Introduction to Forms of Folklore. And I just, I just loved it. I, uh, I realized that folklore and the kinds of questions that were being asked were questions that I didn't realize I had, and I grew up in a way that um, I always kind of felt like I didn't fully understand my own community, my own Latinx community. And so, uh, joining uh, the Folklore Archives, um, you know, getting really involved in the class itself, and I really, you know, I remember very distinctly Alan Dundee's at the front of this huge 300-person lecture hall saying, you know, there's about, you know, 200 of you in this room And maybe two or three of you will decide that this is what you want to do. Uh, And I ended up being one of the two or three of my year. um, And I ended up working for the Folklore Archives. I ended up being an archivist. I ended up being a graduate assistant as an undergraduate for Alan Dundee's. I ended up taking um, his graduate seminar before I left Berkeley for graduate school um, in Indiana. And so I was kind of steeped in academic folklore before I even started graduate school. But uh, folklore gave me a home. Um, and it gave me a home to ask particular kinds of questions about um, how people develop and how communities come together and how they separate. Um, and so that was really interesting to me. And so, since uh, those early years as an undergraduate, um, part and parcel to sort of being exposed to the academic discipline of folklore was um, being mentored by folklorists, Alan Dundies, um, um, Mabel Agostino, who is a, a graduate assistant and really a a second mother in many ways, academic mother um, who fostered sort of a social network around what really was a tiny little boutique stepchild of anthropology at this big research university. And so for me, folklore was, became a haven. I mean, not necessarily a social haven because it really was a very sort of, how do I say this gently? Um, It was very much a middle-class white woman's discipline, (laughs) even at the undergraduate level. But I I found a home there. I found uh, an ability to ask questions um, and I was really asking questions about my own community. So as an undergraduate, I did a project on um, masculinity in Latino communities. And I uh, found myself asking questions that I would have wanted to ask of my father or my grandfather. And uh, that was really meaningful to me. And I, I just decided, well, I'm going to keep doing this. I'm good at it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, and one day I was in Alan uh, Dundee's office for office hours. And I said, what am I, you know, I going to do? And he's like, Rachel, you're going to be a folklorist. And I was like, Okay, <laughs> you know, you get sort of a nudge in that direction, um, and 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 then you run with it, right? You know, take someone just saying, you know, you, you're good at this, and your ideas are important, and there aren't a lot of people doing this kind of work from your vantage point, so why not? Um, and so I did. So I packed up uh, after four years at UC Berkeley. I packed up to move to Southern Indiana um, to start my graduate career at uh, Indiana University in Bloomington. Wow. So that is how. Uh, I became a folklore, well, I would to say, that's how I became a folklore student. Um, I would say that becoming a folklorist um, really started after I first started attending the American Folklore Society, right, and finding kind of a, a larger voice and a larger stake um, in the conversations of the field and, and the communities of the field. Uh, but definitely it started as as early um, uh, early in my secondary education. So definitely thinking about the undergraduate push and then you know, coming together as a professional in graduate school.
1: Wow. So from brain surgery to folklore. It's truly really the same thing,
0: <laughs> <laughs> if anyone asks. But, but you know what I realized is that with brain surgery, even on some level, because I, I remember thinking I really liked psychology and I really wanted to ask questions about how people thought about things. When I, when I was kind of wavering with neurobiology, I, I really liked the idea of evolutionary psychology, which is really asking about how, pe- how we sort of develop certain patterns of behavior, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that was super interesting, super fun. It wasn't a major at Berkeley. If it had been, I probably maybe, maybe would have never found folklore. Or maybe I would have, but it would have been sort of a different sort of backdoor arrangement of using, you know, folkloristic examples in context of psychology, which really wasn't far from how I was trained at Berkeley anyway, Alan Dundee's being a, I, I'd say, avid psychology driven folklore, so most people know him as a Freudian uh psycho <laughs> psychoanalysis driven folklorist um and so I really was exposed to that kind of that sort of psychology angle um and in graduate school then went to sort of this performance angle um which I think suit suit each other quite well when you're working together
1: Alan Dundas I think he you know he was uh what would, what would, I think he's been called not exactly the Pied Piper of folklore, but a lot of people. <laughs> of the of folklore because he was the charisma. Yeah, yeah. You know,
0: and it's interesting, right? Because generationally speaking, it's a it's a different style. It's a different relationship to faculty. Because I would never, I wouldn't know if I'd ever call uh, Dundee's uh, a f- a mentor necessarily. When I think of a mentor relationship, I, I think, um, sort of the graduate assistants who were working at the archives who were kind of helping us through these nuts and bolts. She was more of like an academic figurehead, right? He inspired us to join things. He occasionally had conversations with us, and he, but he was really trying to, to train another generation of folklorists to go out and be folklorists. But he wasn't necessarily, he wasn't necessarily getting kind of close to us personally, which is kind of a different style now, thinking about being faculty. It's, it's kind of a different, it's a little bit different, but it's also of a different generation, right? The kinds of um, relationships that get built or, or kind of don't get built um, with, with really senior faculty. You know, he was senior, senior faculty, even when I started. And actually when I started Berkeley in uh, actually in the early, my first anthropology course, this, under, this um, introduction to sociocultural anthropology, we actually read one of his articles in the class and this was a class taught by someone else. And I had no, and I loved it. And I had no idea he actually, was at Berkeley. So talk about being kind of like, you know, having sort of blinders on to to sort of what the landscape of of departments and disciplines really were as, you know, an undergraduate being kind of clueless. So I kind of stumbled into something that um, I was lucky that uh, the pieces fit together the way they did.
1: Yeah, so now, you know, from Dundas to your work, which is, um, you know, really the next generation and really um, pushing uh, the study of folklore um, in a new... I would say in a, in a different direction, with a different focus, which leads me into the first question I wanted to ask you. So you write that your book is a story about representation and materiality um, rather than ritual. Uh, yes. For many folklorists, the study ritual is one of the pillars of the folklore discipline, and some might see it as the obvious lens in which to study uh, quinceañeras. Yeah. Why is it important to approach quinceañeras with a focus on representation instead? And actually, before you answer that question, if you could just explain for people who may not be familiar with quinceñeras can you explain a little bit about that, uh, what it is, and the process, and then sure. talk about um, why representation is virtual?
0: Sure. Sure. Um, so, quinceñera celebration is a really can be really big, but. It- it's it's a marked or special fifteenth birthday celebration that's that's um, celebrated for traditionally young women, but more in contemporary times also can be young men who are seen as coming of age in uh, Latino Latina communities, Latinx communities across the United States, but also have a historical precedent in Latin America. Um, not necessarily. Uh, not necessarily all across Latin America, but definitely Caribbean, Mexico, Central America, and some of northern parts of South America in particular where, where it's been documented. Um, and it's, it's it's a cross between, um, you know, we hate this folk, of course, I hate to give symbolic equivalences. It's, it's something I particularly loathe. But if you think about um, a ritual, 16th birthday suit, 16 in the United States, right, where there's a larger party, there's a more of an emphasis on a young person becoming sort of a semi-young adult or an adult. Um, there's special dress, right? It isn't just any old day. It's some kind of um, special attire, ritual attire or you know, formal clothing, right? And so again, you have connections with um, American prom, Sweet 16, or uh, other people in the in the South in particular thinking about cotillion cultures where you have uh, young people coming of age in formal attire, tuxedos and white gowns um, in groups. But quinceaneras, um, particularly quinceaneras in the, the late 20th and early 21st century um, are usually individual events. So a one woman or one young woman Uh, whose family is organized around celebrating her coming of age. And in the U.S., um, these events have have really grown since I was a kid and since I was 15 uh, to be much more encompassing of a wider U.S. cultural community than, let's say, just Latino communities, or even for many people, just Latino immigrant communities. Um, And so typical quinceanera involves um, quite a bit of planning, depending on your family's, you know, ability to spend time planning a big, Party, but for most people, it's you know uh, about a year. Um, I tended to talk to families who had been bringing their 12 or 13 year old daughter to quinceanera Expos and and talking about the event for many years before they started planning. Um, But I've also talked to folks who said, Oh, we had two months and it was just a last minute decision. But there typically is a a period of planning um, that looks a lot like American wedding planning, right? So we have the purchasing of a large, sometimes quite expensive. Um, dress anywhere from a few hundred dollars to many thousands of dollars you have music uh you have food a dinner sort of a dinner dance scenario um typically quinceaneras were the purview of the catholic church for many years many generations um so that's a part of the event usually you have a ritual or a blessing or a mass um in communities now you have people with a much larger array of religious beliefs and practices. So what that kind of blessing can look like can vary dramatically, right? From sort of Protestants to non-denominational to people who practice Aztec dance and, and want that as the ritual component. Um, and then you have a party, right? So much like a wedding, you have people at a church or at a hall and then people transition to a ballroom or a location for a party, right? Depending on, um, Uh, how much money people have invested or the the culture of the event they want, something more formal. Um, But in the end, the idea is to celebrate a young woman, um, to celebrate her first 15 years of life, and this idea that the next phase of her life is supposed to be one of responsibility beyond childhood, um, behind expectations of children, right? You're now a young adult. You have um, family expectations. You have community expectations. um, And so this is your chance to be recognized, um, as growing into this adult position.
1: Okay, Rachel, so, you know, um, can you say a little bit more uh, in your book? You uh, focus on representation rather than ritual. So can you say a little bit more about that?
0: Sure. So this is really interesting. Usually the first question that I've been asked, and I've been doing this research for a while, so whether it's students or whether it's family members um, or, or businesses, you know, business, uh, business owners and things, the folks that I, that I've engaged with, People ask, oh, did you have a quinceanera? And I said, no, uh, that was not part of, of my identity as a Latina. But I do have a story of, of, of quinceaneras because that's still part of my existence, right? As a Latina, whether it's the idea of I talk about having a story of presence or absence, right? So I have to always have the story of like, no, I didn't have one. Here are the reasons why. So that becomes my quinceanera story, right? It's, it's sort of this non-existence of an expectation. And actually the first, and so calling this book or, or conceptualizing this book really as about representation rather than ritual was um, a complicated choice. And Nancy, it goes back to what you were saying in the beginning, that ritual really is a cornerstone of folklore studies, always has been, right? And, and has sort of a, a very classical, um, a, very, a very sort of classical thematic sense of like, sure, this is a ritual. It's a rite of passage. Therefore, mm-hmm. we're looking at a, a ritual frame, want to understand the, c- uh, the celebration in a particular kind of way, with a particular kind of logic. Um, and honestly, uh, the, the pieces of writing and the, the, art- the articles and some of the very um, introductory sort of you know, children's books about what a quinceanera is always looked at quinceanera from that ritual perspective, even if it was very slight right? You have the A, then B, then C, and now you're a young lady. And honestly, I, I actually thought it was a little bit deceptive, that kind of simplicity. And I thought that was deceptive because for me, uh, observing and interviewing folks for my dissertation in particular, and my dissertation is not the same as the book. My dissertation focused heavily on dress, I was trained by a material studies scholar. And so I, I was thinking more about actual materials um, and, and um, traditions and, and how the material object of the Quintana dress changed over time. But as I was having those kinds of conversations, I realized I was exposed to a lot of narratives of the hows and the whys of the celebration that didn't necessarily buy into the ritual narrative or the, the idea of, the repetitive, consistent narrative that is sort of used to discuss sort of uh, the A, then B, then C outcome of thinking about the celebration. So I thought, what if, you know, these young women that I talked to weren't really seeing these celebrations as a ritual, right? Um, and even if we go back to studies from the, the 80s, right, where they were very much focused on ritual and they were very much focused on the church. And to me, that was um, the wrong focal point for me. I wasn't interested in what the church was doing. I saw the church as very much as an institution of power. And I was really more interested in what people's parents thought and what girls were thinking or doing. And that really led me to this consumer angle, right? What, what hand did people's individual creativity have in producing this? And even though they still kind of function similarly, they weren't necessarily doing the exact same thing um, from one person to the next. And what was shared wasn't necessarily even the same feeling of coming of age, right? The the idea of this ritual consistency. Um, And so it was actually, and I remember exactly when, in 2013, I was giving a talk at the University of Texas uh, before I had even applied for a job. And it was about uh, this consumer structure, this consumer template for thinking about what if we thought about how tradition comes from what we see on TV, what we see in magazines, rather than thinking it had a narrative of what was being replicated from our own generation of family members, right? Um, and so the generational narrative to me was very much about ritual, recreating something that your aunt or your grandmother or your sister had. And then you had this consumer angle, which said, we know there's a lot of Latinos who don't have a family history of this, but who wanna celebrate it. And so we're gonna, we're gonna give them all these objects to choose from to figure out how to depict themselves. Right, how to uh, create their story visually, and so for me that was the more interesting story, and that's the story that wasn't really being told. But it was also a story that uh, I felt um, a lot of scholars, particularly those of a of a different generation, weren't super interested in telling because there was some tension about the um, culture of consumerism, right? That didn't necessarily seem like a, a an honorable story to tell. So in some levels thinking about representation was really, really starting to think about how my, my research and my book wanted a different or an expanded audience beyond sort of traditional folklores mm-hmm. or even folklorists who are committed to things um, like, you know, heavily specific uh, um, genre studies, right? My book is not a genre study. Um, it's, it sort of explodes a genre study. Right. Um, and so part of that made it, that was really powerful to me because that's what I was seeing people doing. That's what was interesting to me. It wasn't so much the ritual itself, but how people in how people organize things to represent the tradition as they see it. And Mm -hmm. so at this, you know, when I was at UT and and I was giving this talk and someone's like, Oh, it's so, so interesting that you're talking about representation and not the ritual itself. And I was like, Oh my God, that's right. That's what I'm doing. And it was this moment, it kind of a moment of click that, oh, that's what I'm doing. I don't have to apologize because I'm not doing a structured analysis using Van using Vangina stages for, for, you know, rites of passage. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about more of a, a, a closer to sort of critical race and ethnic studies lens to this idea of, uh, you know, where traditional knowledge comes from. So yeah, it kind of, it kind of rides the line in between traditional, folklore studies, which is really how I was trained. And then sort of this next, my, my sort of ideological commitment to talking about the politics of representation, particularly of female bodies, of um, minority female bodies um, in, US. Yeah, in the US.
1: Yeah, in the 21st century, you seem to say that, you know, the religious aspect of it is really uh, backgrounded and more of the uh, presentation is foregrounded and in presentation, it's about the style. And, um, you know, that seems to be an important part of the Quinceanera celebration. Um, and uh, mm-hmm. in your first chapter, you really discuss really, uh, the intersection of style and class. So now that Quinceaneras are not so much about the uh, religious ritualistic aspect of, you know, the tradition, it's more yeah. how, do, how do they embody the class or the aspirations of class mobility through style choices,
0: through the class Sure. Absolutely. And so this can vary, this, this varies in a lot of ways. So I'll give you a few examples, right? So when I think about, I'm thinking about dress and behavior, right? And thinking a little bit about the ways in which people want to perform a certain amount of Americanity, right? And what does it mean to be in the US, but also maintaining a sense of um, ethnocultural history, right? This, this blending, right? This line that people across generations of Latino communities in particular are kind of always riding. And there's the divide between, you know, recent immigrants who have this firm hold on what tradition, what people assume is a firm hold of what tradition is. And then there are these people that are third, fourth, fifth, tenth generation out who, who either gave up or were stripped of things like language and cultural practice. And we're trying to come back to it. So thinking a little bit about where class fits into that. On, on, on some basic levels, we're thinking about the idea of being ostentatious, about being gaudy, um, which is sort of framed as low class, right? It's sort of the, um, the obviousness of performance. And so part of this is definitely thinking about what do working class people see as luxury? And what do they see as the performance of luxury? And how and, and this is where you get sort of these um, mixed perspectives, because what you have are communities. And I usually, and I say this, I think, in the book and specifically, right, there are these highly educated Latinos, um, particularly Latino studies scholars and even folklorists, right, historians, whoever, um, who have this sense that it's their job to create a respectable narrative about Latino communities, or even to sort of influence communities in their research by showing them sort of the right path. And a lot of that comes with the idea of um, conservative spending, right? If you are, if you're a working class person, you should learn how to manage your money properly. That's sort of this implicit class narrative. Um, And so part of, of class identity comes from the, this idea of expenditure right but even the idea of very expensive things don't necessarily can also look quite overdone and gaudy right the idea of a almost like a reprehensible visibility right you need rhinestones on everything you need a dress that glows in the dark you need you know fluorescent colors right so this idea of being visible um becomes extremely important And if we think about trends particularly like latino art latino artists street artists muralists fashion designers right this idea of using these uh, bright, ostentatious colors, right, is not only kind of uh, socially, it's, it's sort of seen as vulgar, right, very much not uh, in line with people who are uh, educated or people who have, um, or like old money, right, who have a sense of what is elegant and what is classy from a very particular Western Euro Uh, influence sort of sense on what is right and what is wrong or what is classy and what is um, working class or poor. Um, And so when I think about quinceanera, it's one of the biggest things that shifted in a real basic way were the colors of the dresses, right? To go from wearing something that was demure and white to going to wearing like the rainbow, (laughs) rainbow tearaway skirt or the, um, you know, leopard print and purple, you know, two, you know, um, multicolored dress right, was a huge gap, was a huge, um, I'd say, innovation, right, in visibility politics, right, to say that I don't necessarily need to um, be viewed as someone who's encoding themselves in someone else's narrative of what is respectable and what is beautiful. I want to be seen as myself and that visibility, right, that visibility politics registered then as looking gaudy, right? Brightly colored, thematically dressed, um, even this notion of having a loud party, right? All of these things, which tend to, you, you know, if you're thinking about, about sound politics, right? I was writing a piece recently about what does it mean that, you know, um, you can hear, you know, racialized hearing, right? You can hear the, the quinceañera party at the ballroom, you know? I actually live close to one of these uh, big ballrooms out in, South, in um, South Austin. You know, you know when there's a certain kind of party coming through. You know that the stretched hummer that's pink is a quinceañera and not a wedding, right? So all these, these markers of being seeable, right, being very conspicuous both about who you are and the fact that you clearly spent money on these consumer goods, right, is part of this narrative of respectability that comes through when we think about class spending. And so when I think about the dress, right, what I saw at micro levels, right, was thinking you know, someone's aunt or someone's grandmother who wanted something very simple versus something that was seen as uh, overly elaborate or ostentatious. And a lot of that was really basic in colors, right? Where, you know, I want to wear lime green and sequins, but grandma wants me in pink, right? What do you do with that? And how does it, yeah.
1: We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember, hot and icy, cold—the rage of the earth. We made this curse. Oh. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senua saga. Hellblade Two. Play it now with Game Pass. So these, um, so would you say that Kinslayers are kind of like a a, uh, a modern day resistance resistance narrative?
0: Well, you know, it's hard, it maybe resistance to some things, but not to others, right? And this is where you get this narrative of consumer culture, right? The consumer ritual, which resists certain things, but it buys into neoliberal capitalism right. on, on the other side. Right. And so I'd say it's, it's not simple enough to see it as a resistance narrative carte blanche. Like, clearly, there's a lot of ways in which this is just business as usual in the contemporary United States. But in the way in which we think about... Latinos, particularly Latino communities, legacy immigrant communities, as somehow always foreign or always different or always on the outside, Mm -hmm. Um, the idea of being 100% down with consumer capitalism and really buying into a particular narrative does resist some of those outsider narratives. And it seems so on purpose, right? The idea of manifesting the American dream on your daughter's body right? This is that manifestation, but it also in smaller ways, right? Thinking about resisting, um, resisting structures of, of, um, gender, uh, well, gender conformity, particularly through behavior, um, you know, this notion of the, the virginal daughter, right? And we're not saying that these young women were promiscuous, but the idea that, the shifting ideals, right? To say that your daughter has to wear white so everyone else knows what her her body has has or hasn't done, or she has or hasn't chosen to do, is very different than saying this really isn't about you know my daughter's quote unquote purity, right? She can wear sequins and she can wear purple and she can wear black and she can have a zombie themed to if she wants. That isn't about that doesn't determine her value, and it's not just girls being able to 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 sort of. Desire this and want this and not be seen as reprehensible or still being seen as respectable. But it's also this idea of parents um, meeting a daughter in, in this way and saying, I'm going to value my daughter on the terms that she wants to be valued for, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, sure, you're probably still going to have a conversation about dating and, and safety and, you know, t- you know t- pregnancy or something like that. But, all, but that's not necessarily the core of this celebration anymore. So, in many ways, there's all these little narratives of resistance. Mm-hmm. But they don't. They come with their own risks uh, of sort of this um, aggrandizing of 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 capitalism, of consumer capitalism. But if we think about buying as a strategy, right? Because part of this wasn't to vilify. Like I, I was really important that I I wanted to talk within this story about the ways in which, um, particularly Latino communities, but I know this happens across minoritized communities, right? The way in which um, there's a class narrative where, you know, wealthy people or educated, people, formally educated people think they can judge the poor, right? I should be able to tell you uh, that you're spending your money wrong, like like the poor children, right? And one of the things that I realized that, especially talking to more recent immigrant families, people whose families, you know, crossed the border under crazy dangerous conditions, who continue to move back and forth, who hustle daily for their money to buy a house, to support their children, to keep everyone together. They've lived their lives in such a way that they know how to keep themselves alive and to celebrate and to survive. And so to tell people at this point, like, oh, you, you really need to, to not buy that dress. You should go to the Goodwill or you should have some nice woman make a simple dress for your daughter instead. And it's like patting people on the head. I thought in some ways, the way in which working class folks um, would say, would really be, be um, able to say, you know, this is my money, I I make it, and I'm going to spend it the way I want. And I'm choosing to invest in this celebration, not just for my daughter, but for my family. And I I think that was sort of a huge, a huge uh, sort of nudge, right? A a, a huge change in terms of thinking about um, the perceptions of working class communities. And even the stories we're allowed to tell about working class communities, right? It doesn't all have to be about romantic poverty, um, it doesn't have to, it doesn't have to be that kind of fight the power narrative. And I, I say it, these girls aren't, these girls aren't necessarily, um, activists in any way and they have no desire to be, but these narratives can be used for that. And actually, um, just coming out later this year, is a piece in the Journal of American Folklore specifically about protesting in Texas and using quinceaneras as, um, these visual models for, um, sort of a coming of age in a community to, um, to come together and protest, you know, immigration rights. So it's not, it, I feel like part of the shift away from ritual and the church and the kind of democratizing of who can say what can belong in the tradition also creates an expanded sense of meaning, right? What the tradition can then do after the fact or what then becomes possible for girls' lives after the fact.
1: Mm-hmm. So it also seems like a, it seems like a declaration. Maybe resistance is the wrong word. Maybe it's like a declaration of who sure. they are and who they want to be in mm-hmm. the same context. And I know that in the book you had mentioned that it was um, uh, back to the class issue, you know, like the, uh, you know, people with money seem to think that they have the right to tell uh, poor people or people with not as much money what to do with mm-hmm. their and this is a way to say, you know what, my money and I can do what I want. And this is how I want to celebrate my family.
0: Absolutely. And it's, you know, to be, but also with the idea that, and this is where it gets complicated with like ritual or tradition and thinking about why framing it in the ritual sense was complicated because there were so many divergent perspectives, right? So you'll still encounter people who are doing a really serious Catholic mass, whose daughters will be wearing a full length, white gown who will be having a very formal um chaste celebration and then you're going to be people who are having like you know like the zombie theme the quinceanera and bounce house for adults right (laughs) there's going to be those edges and i think i think that's actually what's so important right the depiction of the variation right Mm -hmm. um and i think that's if we're thinking from a folklore perspective um i'm more interested in depicting the variation than i am at claiming what is traditional Right. Because I think that's what the community needs to see of themselves.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Because
0: that's what I would have needed to see as, as, as a teenager.
1: So, you know, this is just a, a, a question that just kind of came to my, came to my mind. So in the beginning of the book, you wrote, uh, you described a picture of a, um, of a young woman with a purple dress and uh, she was. Oh, the Tundara. Yeah, Tundara. Yeah. I didn't, I looked, I looked up the picture online and I didn't, Understand why she was seen as low class. Can you explain to me, describe a little yeah. bit you know, why she was seen as low class? <laughs> well, first, so the idea
0: that the, the chuntara, right, the idea of this—it's uh, really like an urban low class teenager. Um, and so part of it, this is this is interesting, right? It's the idea of where one goes dressed for their quinceañera right? What is the idea of, in people's minds, this respectable narrative of what people do and how you need to be disciplined? Because you think about even focusing on the dress, right? Thinking about being in a huge corseted gown, right? The idea that what you should do is you should go from the mass to sitting somewhere neatly and waiting patiently. You shouldn't be roaming the mall. You shouldn't be drinking a soda or a Slurpee. You shouldn't just be hanging out killing time, right? As though this wasn't a special event. Um, But yeah, and so I think this idea of just sort of like slacking around mm-hmm. at the food court is something that you are like, oh, how awful. You're like, well, maybe. But you know, if she already took her pictures <laughs> and she's just hanging out waiting, because you think about a lot of people, right? It's the, um, the waiting in between a, a, like a mass and a reception, right? There's maybe four or five hours. So the idea of killing time with your friends. Um, right. But again, to see that, and this is, this is sort of what's more important, right? This idea, this narrative of disclosure right? This sort of, when you think about like really classical sort of like Victor Turner and thinking about theater and ritual, right? This is definitely the backstage, right? Um. This is where <laughs> normally like you want people to see this part. You want you want to be sipping a soda carefully so you don't smudge your dress or, you know, getting your makeup, you know, you're not sweating through your makeup or whatever. You're not looking like you're just, again, literally walking the mall um, right. and going into like a full locker, <laughs> uh, you know, because it's sort of like, it's like, this is supposed to be special. And that, that um, breaks through that narrative of what is special. But what it does then is show sort of this narrative of, I can do what I, you know, I have a right to choose what I do. If I want to walk, if I'm comfortable enough to walk around in sneakers and this dress, then I'm going to do it, right? And so there's this, this is, it's very much seen as a sense of a lack of personal control. So where class is this idea of an inability to control one's body and we think about the quinceanera in many ways, like a wedding, right? The idea of, you know, putting women in spanks and a, a corset, right? The idea of controlling the body. And this then is a pushback to sort of defiance, right? It's definitely sort of this defiant tone. Like, no, I'm going to swish around in my purple dress. It's cool. If I kind of, you know, I'll, I'll just do what I, I want to do until and, and time. Because I don't want to be bored by myself waiting, you know, in a car. Or maybe I want to get the most out of my limo use because my parents paid. an hour for it. And so either I'm sitting in a parking lot or they drove us to the mall. Right. (laughs) And so seeing these different elements that kind of are what expose some of the things that um, some people might think are reprehensible is this idea of, well, you know, if she wasn't taught to be, she wasn't taught, right. The idea that if she was, um, if she had sort of breeding and training to be respectable as a young lady, you know, this idea of the sort of the cotillion um, that sort of courtly sense which, again, is lost in a lot of things, right, you know, as, as cultures go. But the idea of not even try, trying to replicate that, um, I think, was really what was the most fun about that image.
1: I see. The other thing that comes to my mind is, um, uh, well, I remember a Harry Potter quinceaner I saw. Yes. Yes. And yes. you spoke about the zombie-themed. Uh, yes. Image. So right, fun. Would those be seen as cool? Are they high-class, low-class? How would they be perceived?
0: Oh, and, and here's where it opens things up. It depends. It totally depends. Honestly, those themed ones probably cost a lot more than a typical yeah. uh, traditional <laughs> non-themed quinceanera. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, you know, thinking about, I mean, so if you think about, like, some of the Harry Potter ones, right? Because uh, there's, been, there's been plenty, right? Or the craft dance uh, to Michael's thriller. And you think about multiple costumes, the music, if you're really committed, the, de- the, the decorations, right? All of that kind of investment isn't the typical, isn't typically what you would find, you know, in the spring season for a, a de, uh, for a, a ballroom or a hall. Right. So the idea that everything has to be brought in and then everything has to then be customized around it. Right. So very different from saying, I'm either going to have, you know, white or pink linens. No, you want black and purple linens. And then you want, you know, uh, ornate, you know, weird Gothic chandeliers to go with your theme. So, I mean, in many ways, even though it seems, uh, it seems quote unquote low class or like it's, it's off. It's actually quite expensive Mm -hmm. um, to have those really, um, those really unique, um, those really unique themes. And it takes a certain kind of creativity, right? It's a totally different angle, but it also shows how entrenched, I particularly when talking about, you know, these celebrations are in, in U.S. popular culture right? This isn't, you know, this, when people talk about, oh, that's so Mexican, or that's so Latino. It's like, actually, it's pretty American. And that's what's funny about it, is it's, as much as it's, it rides the line, right? Especially when you get into these themed uh, events, it, it's humorously, you, you couldn't just place it, in, you couldn't place it in one geography and say, that's its home anymore. It's just really not possible. But I think one of the things that I was so interested in, I never really talked about it, but it was something that I saw as I was you doing research over many years, was um, advertisements for quote-unquote Mexican-themed quinceañeras, which um, I <laughs> thought was hilarious, because it was really, it was almost like, I'm like, really? Like, it was almost kind of a farce, right? Because you realize, like, so many different Latino communities celebrate quinceañeras, particularly in the United States, but also the idea that for most people, the origins of quinceañera are really rooted in, are seen to rooted in Mexico, right? The way people narrate a history. But but the idea that then what you're celebrating in a Mexican-themed quinceanera turns into sort of like piñatas and like what look like, um, you know, every girl wearing like dresses that look like you're serving margaritas at a Tex-Mex restaurant, right? It's sort of this, this humorous connection to, um, to cultural performance, right? Even from within the community. And so I think that kind of layering of identity of, of, of people taking themselves and their representations, not necessarily just take them seriously but deciding that they can play with them that ludic frame right being able to say that i think this is i'm going to make this what i want to make it and not being really not not feeling as beholden to social scripts of the past is what i think is the most um the most powerful and kind of you're saying like the most declarative um sort of distancing from from the past
1: uh well part, part of having all these different kinds of celebrations is it because they can also post it online. And so yes. it's not just restricted just to your immediate family or your location, but it can really be broadened with the internet. And um, you wrote that consignia uh, knowledge is brokered and mediated online, yes. um, and it's not a place where you know you just have like these static photographs, but it's a place where people can talk about these ideas and to create a space for the evolution of consigneras.
0: Absolutely, yeah, it's totally. and to me, it's so interesting because. When I, I mean, part of this is where, you know, I I sort of middle my own experiences, right? As a kid, I didn't, you know, pre-internet days and before smartphones or cell phones at all, right? You know, where would you get pictures? How would you know someone went to a quinceanera or had a quinceanera? And this was the idea of going into someone's house and they would have like a little curio cabinet and you would see people's little um, favors, right? So growing up, I had, I remember, Very specifically, the little, like, it was like a little potpourri bag. uh, And it was like a purple ribbon on it from, like, a cousin, who I didn't really know, but, like, they'd sent something to my mother, probably from L.A., um, celebrating someone's quinceanera. Like, that was your connection to it. But there was also, like, a a tiny plastic shoe that had Jordan almonds in it that had the ribbon around it, the uh, capia, that said the date. And, you know, um, I think it was uh, my my cousin, my god sister, Amelia's quinceanera that I mentioned in the, in the preface. And, it, you know, it, that's how you knew someone went to a quinceanera. or someone had one. We never had, I never had photographs. You never had photographs unless you were there. Right. But now, you know, thinking about, you know, the advent of social media in the last well, 20 years, you know, thinking about building these personal sites online, whether it was MySpace or Facebook or Instagram or Snapchat, or, you know, all the things now compounded together, or Google video, or, you know, as a YouTube videos, or any kind of, like, documentation, online documentation portal, right, provides a chance for people to feature themselves. And they do. And so the idea, if you put, especially if you think about these themed events, right, um, the first themed event I saw was um, uh, part of uh, someone's memory video, right? Someone who they they went out to do a photo shoot uh, for their quinceanera, and then they also had someone documenting the photo shoot. And so it was a girl who was doing it wasn't a zombie quinceanera. It was a Day of the Dead scene quinceanera. And so they were taking photographs of the girl in her quinceanera dress, which was black with colors. Um, and she was in calavera, so with the skull, the traditional skull makeup. But she was taking photographs in a cemetery, right, in the U.S., you know, here, here in the U.S. Wow. And so realizing that, that, and I remember looking, I remember looking at it and being like, oh man, this is from like 2009. And it was probably around 2011 or 2012. And I was like, you know, thinking about the life of these traditions online, and they're just constantly being uploaded. And all you have to do is put in, like, the themes into YouTube or into Google, and and, and it all just pops up, right? Mm -hmm. And it's the, you know, the newest thing, um, the latest thing. Um, And so the idea that if you know you're coming of age, a young woman is coming of age now, you know the idea of being 15 and not using the internet, internet seems very silly, right? You're thinking about smartphones, and you're thinking about uh, like a constant stream of of information and images, right? Kim Cattrall has become part of that particular generation's. Uh, narratives of self right so looking cute at the quinceanera dancing at the quinceanera uh being dressed up wearing especially if you're part of it right the makeup the hair your family um and this also is is not just about age mate peers right but you think about people whose families live transnationally right my Mm -hmm. grandmother in mexico i wanted to see the dress because she couldn't be here but we're having two parties and she'll see the other one or the idea of cousins or just friends Mm -hmm. right Um, around the country or, or across borders right where the internet is just it's just a click away right you know if they have access right they can they can get these images so yeah I think more than because you have before this were these these kind of really basic planning books which I think are interesting but there's something very and I realize this is me being kind of in between generations right I'm I'm, uh, I'm definitely the oldest end of millennials, but I'm probably more along the line of Gen X, right? There's these interesting mixes of where age matters, because realizing the books that talk about Quinceaneras are so static, right? And Quinceanera does, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's sort of like, oh, really? Because I saw three Quinceaneras that don't do that. So where do you, where do you account for that? So there's a kind of dynamism, right? with thinking about sort of the constant stream of images and videos that become possible, but also the services that are online, right? The fashion shows that you can find, um, everything being reposted and circulated. And so it's both one extremely overwhelming if that's not your generation, right? But on the other side, um, the possibilities for engineering an event that might look like something that you like is, is so much more possible. And that, that narrative of finding something that suits you within the tradition um, is more likely going to keep this tradition alive in many ways because if we look at sort of accounts from the early 90s and late 80s, particularly thinking about Chicana feminists talking about what it meant to be forced into a quinceanera that was very conservative, very religious, um, very, fem- very feminine in a way that people did not, d- didn't appreciate or were later talking about having come out as, as lesbian or queer or something else, right? The rigidity of it made people reject it. And now you can find this whole variation around quinceañeras for young men, quinceañeras who are wearing suits. Like, you know, the idea of the way we see the fashion reflecting, like, I can, I can find myself in the tradition. The tradition doesn't have to essentially define me. Um, and that's powerful, right? People want to connect with their past. They just don't want to be um, confined
1: by it. So what struck me is that, in a way, uh, the quinceañera is kind of declaring your uh you know Latino Latino identity but in a very American sort of way. Yes.
0: <laughs> absolutely. It's absolutely an American tradition. Like that's from from the, the vantage point that I'm I'm looking at it from this vantage point specifically as sort of the consumer ritual. Um uh, mm-hmm. it's 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 about the development and the acceptance on some level of a hybrid American identity, right? Mm-hmm. Where we where we're asked to understand then or question what does it mean to be American right? The idea that we ask um, how we, you know, this idea of coming together in this middle ground, it's something that's not fully Latino and it's not fully sort of Anglo-American, right? Which gets really, you know, um, overused, right? What does it mean to be an American? What, what, in what ways? But in reality, right, I think it's the coming together, right? It's sort of a perfect example of what it means to really buy in on both sides, right? To say, I'm going to remember my ethno-racial history I'm going to remember my grandparents and generations, but I'm going to do it in a way that absolutely reflects that I was born and raised and in part of, of the fabric of the United States right, as a culture
1: group. So the era as a space where there are lots of different possibilities, you know, from, from yes. your research and you know, your research is also transnational. You know, you um, you did some research in Mexico City. But mm-hmm. how in other countries in Latin America, I mean, do you find it holds the same possibilities in other countries as well, too, because of the digital space where Quinceanera can evolve and, you know, be very creative?
0: Yeah, you know, I, I've dipped a little into research from different areas, but I don't, I mean, I wouldn't necessarily have an authoritative perspective I, uh, in terms of, like, what's going on in other countries. I can tell you, though, absolutely that this idea of class becomes a big factor right Mm because if you have money um you find a lot of people uh you find it particularly in I was looking at some advertisements that were coming out of um it was Peru and Colombia and they were specifically about getting your quinceanera photos done in a photo shoot in the United States Mm -hmm. it was like you and 10 other girls will kind of like pay to get sort of taken around spots in the U.S. So New York City or San Francisco, I think some girls were going to Vancouver, right? Something, you know, in sort of North American context, um, to have these elaborate photos taken. And I actually have a really good friend, her niece is in, was in um, Jalisco, um, in in Mexico, no, excuse me, Sinaloa. She's in Sinaloa. And, um, you know, her parents have some money and so uh she's like oh yeah my niece is in new york city this week i'm like oh why she's, like, she's having she's doing a quinceanera photo shoot i'm like oh is she having her quinceanera in new york and they're like no she's having it back in sinaloa but they're gonna have these portraits of this young woman this transnational girl in front of you know the empire state building and that becomes a marker of a certain kind of social arrival right and that persists across latin america right this idea of traveling to the u.s um even if it's just temporary, right? Mm. If you have the money, right? Because you have the money to travel like this. You have the ability to be sort of getting a, you know, a a visa for vacation, right? You're not someone who's, you know, scraping by to get across the border to work and live, right? You're vacationing. And so already there's this, a different kind of relationship to those images that become circulated. Um, In I believe it was, was I can't remember right now. Um, Maybe it was Colombia in Bogota, um, looking at girls still sort of having these schemes and addresses, like doing photo shoots, but they were using the backdrops of poverty, right? They were, and so it was this interesting way in which it was more of a sort of a, a morality narrative about either family sacrifice for their daughter to have this symbolic garment, even though they're living in, in, in other forms of poverty, right? Or, or they're housing insecure, food insecure. Um, and so it becomes more of a political narrative. In Cuba in particular, um, there's been some really interesting work about the history of the tradition to where in in Cuba and the the work that's been done there, it's very much just about photography. It's about, you know, taking pictures in old cars in sort of downtown, you know, in old Havana. Um, And it's even since uh, the the borders were opened up under Obama, um, American Latinas, particularly Cuban Americans, um, going back and using more limited funds to get a, a bigger sort of bang for your buck to have your quinceanera in Cuba. And part of that was this idea of photo shoots, right? Having these ideal photo shoots or this, you know, gown changes. So there's an interesting, um, there's an interesting narrative to, to these celebrations in Latin America, but they are different, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I was in Mexico City and working with um, my good friend, Leah Garcia, who's um, a mujer who is a performance artist, mujer trans performance artist, um, she was very much invested in thinking about, um, you know, that people are still very much see the quinceanera um, in a romantic way, right? So much so that it, it's, it's even a little bit too cutesy for words, right? But that's very much a class distinction, right? The upper class versus people that are very much poor working class who still, who still see the ritual as a ritual, Right. They aren't necessarily thinking of it as like consumer coming of age. This is something that, that signifies sort of girlhood into womanhood. So you really, there are a, a lot of nuanced angles um, for thinking about its depiction. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, but it, it's worth more, you know, that, I mean, I'm not going to do it, but there's definitely <laughs> larger narratives. And again, thinking about how information circulates, right? Depending on your, your connection to, the, to global media streams right, means you're exposed in different ways, right? Or whether, and you know, I talk about this early on, right, the idea of television and movies, um, the sh- a show from last year, the um, Los Spookies, Los Spookies, um, that was on HBO. Um, so, you know, Latinx comedy, kind of amb- ambiguously Los Angeles and Latin America, hard to tell, but like their opening episode was um, a zombie-themed, a, a zombie-themed quinceanera in Los Angeles. I think it was in Los Angeles, I forget, but i keep just thinking about the frames, but the idea of encountering the tradition in places beyond your neighborhood, um, your geographic space becomes extremely powerful, right, mm-hmm. um, to sort of this narrative of what becomes, what's possible, right, mm-hmm. um, that doesn't mean it still doesn't come under fire, right, and it's still not something that people can take for granted, right, there's no one narrative, but I think foregrounding this narrative of possibility, um, mm-hmm really offers young women a chance to to think about assets, right? Think about the knowledge and the experiences that they have that don't have to be detrimental, right? They don't need to be seen as antithetical to growing up strong and, and uh, successful in the United States or strong and successful and culturally aware, right? They don't have to be, you don't have to be um, controlled by sort of these images of the past or assume that because the tradition is part of a particular cultural heritage that it's going to reinforce um, these negative ideas of, or these uh, what some people think of as um, anti-modern ideas, right? The idea that a quinceaneda doesn't go to college and have a career, have whatever life she admissions for herself um, is ridiculous. Right? Mm-hmm. The idea that it's the quinceaneda or college, it's, it's not.
1: It's mm-hmm. not. So uh the as a space for self declaration, if we could go back to um your friend whom you mentioned Leah Garcia, which I found yeah. um you know I found her use of the um uh like use of the Kicineera in her art very interesting so she is a transgender um female or a transgender woman performance artist yeah. in Mexico City, and she uses Kicineera in uh her art, which she calls art artivist right Artivist. yeah um- yeah, artivism. Yes. So, and so I'm art, yeah. kind of, um, interested in um, learning more about how does she use it as a space, as, you know, a space for, um, you know, queer liberation? I don't know if that's the right word. Uh, right. I don't know if liberation is yeah. right word. Yeah, I don't think
0: she, I would say that she's going for queer liberation, although she'd probably spend a lot of time thinking about queer in English and queer in Spanish, um, but definitely thinking about maybe not queer liberation, but body liberation, right? Mm -hmm. So her work, she spends, so she really looks at, I mean, she really is is, is working through her own physical transition, right? Mm -hmm. And thinking through how the quinceañera is the ubiquitous marker of female coming of age, right? And so Mm -hmm. in some ways, she's telling a very personal story Um, But what she's also sharing is the constructedness, right, of, of these gender norms. Um, and particularly when she's thinking about how when people see her, particularly from far away, right, the visibility politics of, let's say, wearing, wearing a big and Quintaneda dress in a big public square space in Mexico City, right, people see it even from the corner of their eye, and they know what they're looking at. It's not like necessarily the United States or, or areas where there's less knowledge of Latino culture, right, in Mexico City. People know what they're looking at right? When they see the big teal dress or the big pink dress, um, you know, traipsing down the street or in a square or in the, in the metro station. Um, And so part of what she's capitalizing on is understanding that there's something kind of romantic and historical and nostalgic about seeing this. Um, And so in terms of gathering an audience that even on some level might be really kind of not starstruck, but definitely sort of oh, thinking about sort of their own youth or being sort of drawn to it as a, as an innocuous image, right, of culture, like, oh, this is really wonderful. And then kind of being faced with something that they need to deal with, which is you get closer or she speaks and she's marked as, you know, different. You can tell she's not, you know, she, she, her voice is deep. Or Mm -hmm. if you look at the young men, the, the dancers, the people she's dancing with, all of a sudden you realize, oh, I think those are you may not say trans men, but you, you, all of a sudden it's like, they're different. Right. And so this idea of sort of not a bait and switch, but I think she plays a lot with, with this idea of deception, which Uh in trans communities is, is so dangerous, right? This, this, this idea of um, the difference between like willful deception and lying to people and the idea of someone encountering um, an identity they weren't certain about before. Uh And so the idea that she's really, she really has this sophisticated, an understanding of one, how to draw on an audience, right? How to draw on an audience on their terms, right? And the can see to become sort of this symbol of something that we assume people understand. And in her embodying this role, she shows them how much more they still have to learn. Mm-hmm. So I think on a lot of levels, uh, you know, really basically thinking about bodily development, right? Thinking about, you know, uh, re, you know, this, this choice to say, I, you know, I'm gonna, I'm gonna change the, um, I'm gonna change my social identity, I'm gonna change how um, my body literally looks and is, you know, from the inside out. And then showing people, like, I'm going through what your daughter went through. Mm -hmm. You know, I just started at a different point, Mm -hmm. you know? And so part of this facilitates a certain kind of, um, closeness, right? Being able to shake someone's hand or being able to, she talks about, you know, um, uh, you know, um, effective, uh, effective, Affect, right? You know, affect, going into and having sort of these emotional connections with people that if you started from the outset saying, hey, I'm a trans woman, come shake my hand because I'm a human being, um, wasn't going to happen, mm-hmm. right? She'd really on some levels be calling violence to herself. Um, and in many ways, by, by drawing in this audience on a term that they understand, like she was saying, you know, we've had conversations about how, you know, particularly older men, right, who look and they see their daughter or their niece, or they see someone in her through her, that that moves them in such a way, even when they realize that you know they're they're sort of softer in understanding, like oh, you know, you're just you're just a girl, right? Even mm-hmm. in their you know this this ability to move past some of the ugliness, um, and that's really powerful because you know for her I right, we talk about this we've talked about this a lot it is life and death, right? It's an inability to. You know, to work straight jobs—it's an inability. You know, it's discrimination. It's fear. So the idea of part of this—it's a sacrifice, right? Um, Not a sacrifice, but a risk to put herself on display in these ways. But she's really found ways to connect with people that really makes them question. um, Really makes them question what motivations they have um, to be so low, uh, to be so hateful, right? Of of folks that are are
1: non-binary, right? In many levels. Yeah, that's really powerful. Really, really powerful. So Rachel, I think I've taken up um, a lot of your time and I want to thank you for um, coming on here to uh, discuss your um, research. It's really been fascinating to hear you talk about quinceaneras. And um, before I let you go, I'd like to ask you a final question, which is uh, your next project. My next project? Yes. So
0: My next project is going to be on, well, this is what the plan is, social entrepreneurship and nail art. So um, I'm actually working with my friend Leah. uh, We're going to be doing a component of this in Mexico City. Um, working with um, trans women and, and non-binary men, anybody who really wants to, but thinking about nail art. So I'm thinking about, uh, with the that I was thinking a lot about big spectacle, big visibility. And so with this, I want to think about um, one artistry on a really small scale, right? Um, so thinking a little bit about artistic creations on people's bodies, right? So particularly like nails. Um, but I'm also thinking about this concept of social entrepreneurship. And I'm thinking about ways in which Um, particularly sort of salon spaces, business spaces that are owned by women of color across the board. So I'm thinking Latina, Latino, but definitely um, Asian American, African American, even indigenous, if I could find folks. Um, But thinking about how these kind of salons, one, they facilitate a certain kind of local community, right? That can become particularly um, hubs of uh, social development, right? Mm-hmm. The idea of what does it mean to have a small business in a neighborhood that is your own, right? And what does it mean to foster a kind of collectivity there? But also thinking about what does it mean for um, nail technicians to be artists, right? To to mark people's bodies in a particular way. Um, and how those those different forms of art are, are often class and race in a very particular way, right? So I grew up in a very, um, I grew up in African-American neighborhoods. So, in my mind, even as a kid, when I thought of women wearing acrylic nails, they looked very different because to me they were African-American women and the nail technicians were Vietnamese American women or Vietnamese women, not always Vietnamese American. Um, And so that, and that even facilitated a certain kind of cultural dynamic between Asian Americans and African Americans locally, right? So part of me wants to think a little bit about these spaces of business that are also spaces of art. Um, and what do they do for, for communities? What can they do for communities? Thinking a little bit about, as we're getting into a lot more, um, mutual aid aid and solidarity movements, like, you know, what, what does it mean to have a small, you know, particularly for women, right? To think about, as we think about histories of, of, um, minority women, what spaces they're allowed to work in notions of respectability, um, and, and sort of, and sort of thinking about that changing over time. And what does it mean? Um, to create these spaces where we're also seeing the socialization of a certain kind of womanhood, a racialized and class womanhood, both from the people working, the people owning the space, and the people getting serviced in that space. And then thinking of sort of about a bigger picture, right, of, of people's perception of um, what what is art, what is what is the capability, um, what does it mean um, to 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 do custom art right on people's bodies, this kind of intimacy and um, that kind of intimate labor. And so just, I'm really interested in sort of feeling out what this looks like, if it's even impossible, but that's the goal. That's the goal is to um, dive into these spaces. And some of these spaces are very much, we do, you know, they're really committed to the art angle of it and others, they become more of these community centers, right? Um, The place where you go to get the real basic, you get your, you know, your polish and your, 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 your manicure and your polish, but you know, you know you you know who you're working with you go you have a regular person right this is a, a place that you socialize weekly or biweekly or bi monthly or something like that mm. so um that's what I'm 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 kind of looking at uh now that sounds really fascinating
1: i'm looking forward to reading your next book <laughs> Awesome. Again.
0: i i will keep you posted and i'm thank you very much for um including me in the podcast and uh chatting with me today I, it's always fun to um to hear you know hear different angles of how people ask questions or are thinking about the work. So, um, I appreciate you. Thank you.
1: Well, thank you for having, uh, thank you for coming on the show. And, um, uh, we will talk again soon when your next book comes out. Great. All right. Well, take care. Thank you.